BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Edition with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. So, Mara, there's big news once again coming out of Days of Our Lives. The show has announced that it will be revisiting the possession tale of the mid-90s that basically changed daytime forever and made the show water cooler talk, if you will. Back then, of course, it was Marlena who was possessed and John performed an exorcism. No word on who will be involved this time around, but we will see the beginnings of the tale come to light when Johnny gets Will's script about Sammy and reads that his grandmother was possessed back in the day. So of course he will tell his twin sister Allie who will seek answers from John. And I mean, this story is right up head writer Ron Carlovati's Allie and I'm looking forward to watching it play out for sure. I got a chuckle on Twitter when I saw Ron like a tweet that said something like, you gotta admire Ron's restraint for not doing this story his first year on the show. Uh, Because, you know, not only was this one of the most talked about stories Daytime has ever told and one that got a lot of mainstream attention, but as you know, it's the kind of story that I think Ron can really sink his teeth into. He definitely has a taste for the outrageous. And yeah, I am very curious to see what The Devil 2.0 will get into as scripted by Ron. Uh, Now, another huge story poised to explode is one we have the scoop on in the new issue. It is time for Sonny Corinthos to come home on General Hospital with his memories intact, might I add. Uh, He is, of course, returning to a different Port Charles landscape than the one he left, in no small part because his return is juxtaposed with the dramatic fallout from the wedding of Sonny's uh, quote-unquote widow Carly to his best friend Jason, which started out as a business arrangement, but the old feelings between Jason and Carly bubbled up to the surface. So there is a lot of drama to mine, which we discussed actually in our last podcast with Carly's portrayer, Laura Wright. But I had a great conversation with Maurice Bernard, Sonny's portrayer, about the shows that we're about to see. And he described them as as intense as anything he's ever done. So next week on GH is one fans should be sure not to miss. Well, our cover line on the new issue is, you know, the moment you've been waiting for. And I don't think that's an overstatement. I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten about this from, let's say, patients waning fans of General Hospital. Um, but what I find crazy about the situation as a whole is the fact that Sonny was presumed dead nine months ago. 
I mean, nine months? Maybe it's because we're working from home and time passes differently, but I never would have guessed that time frame correctly. Mm -hmm. But I am also looking forward to that moment when Carly and Jason see Sonny and he sees them. It is going to be priceless. Uh, now, Sonny isn't the only one with big story ahead. Young and Restless is devoting an entire episode to Jack, so we will see Peter Bergman in the spotlight. Uh, you know, Peter made a very good point to us in the new issue that this is the first time in his entire run on the show that he's felt like an island because all of the Abbots have moved away, and Jack is very lonely in that mansion. <laughs> you know, we, we ran a snap poll recently asking fans, do Jack and Phyllis have unfinished romantic business. And I was very surprised uh, by the results, which was 70% in favor of yes, they do. But whether it's with Phyllis or someone else, I do hope that we see Jack find some love. You know, it has been a really long time since we've seen Jack in a coupling that fans have really caught into. Uh, not that he needs a romance to be vital by any means. I, I just think that what YNR seems to be doing, which is really exploring who Jack is now and devoting time to answering that question is smart and overdue. And I'm always happy when Peter has really great material to sink his teeth into. Oh, here, here. I mean, Peter Bergman should be doing more than being a talk to, and Jack is still such a vital character. But we've also lamented the underuse, if you will, of Michelle Stafford and Phyllis. So putting these two in each other's orbit again, however it winds up, is a win in my book. So another win in my book is the General Hospital casting of our guest today. It's Charles Shaughnessy, who Days fans know as Shane Donovan, Primetime fans know as Maxwell Sheffield, and now GH fans know as Victor Cassadine. So let's check in with him and see how it's all going. Hi, Charles. Hi. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Mara. Good to see Hello. you. Hello. You too. How are you doing? I am doing just fine and dandy today. You know what it's like these days. You have to qualify it by saying today because who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But right now, everything's good. Wonderful. Well, we are speaking to you at such an exciting time. The week of Beyond Salem just aired. You made your General Hospital debut. But we are going to start at the beginning. You were okay. born in London. Your parents had ties to showbiz, your father was a writer, and your mom an actress. So your father was actually the principal writer on Upstairs Downstairs, which was a very important series in the 1970s. So tell us what it was like to grow up in London, in that area, and what you remember about the glimpse you got into the entertainment industry as a child. Well, um, you know, I, uh, I grew up in London, in Chelsea, and um, uh, my first experiences with the sort of stage and where things might go is when I was in preschool and we were learning to to read and no one wanted to read in front of the class except me. I always loved reading in front of the, and I didn't really know what that was. I just loved reading to people in the class. And they did a little school play, uh, Peter Rabbit, and I thought I was going to be Peter Rabbit. And I wasn't. I was third bluebird on the left and I was miserable. And my second emotion, after being miserable and hating my best friend who was Peter Rabbit, my next thing was, oh, this is interesting. I'm really upset about this. This is a little five-year-old. I went, I am upset. This must mean something. So I then proceeded to act in every school play. My family, as you say, my dad was a writer, my mom was an actress. So they kind of understood it was in the blood. Um, but I don't think anyone expected me to do it as a profession. And indeed, I ended up going to university to read law. I did law, got a law degree at Cambridge. But of course, at Cambridge, I was in the footlights, I did plays, I directed plays. So I came out going, you know, I'm not going to be a lawyer. Uh, I'm, I want to be in the, in the, in the um, theater business. Because I had by that time growing up, 
A, seen my mum act on stage, and B, uh, more importantly, I'd spend a summer at, um, at, at Upstairs Downstairs watching the whole process. They gave me a sort of PA job for a summer. So I was there in rehearsals and saw it all get put together. I saw how the sausage was made, which puts a lot of people off. I just found it absolutely fascinating, and I was even more interested in being an actor. So uh, that's what happened. I ended up going to drama school, uh, gave up the law, and um, went into the family business. Much to the disappointment, I may say, of my parents. They completely understood, and they got behind it in the end, but they were kind of hoping that someone was going to do something sensible and actually make some money as the you know, Lord Chief Justice of England. But... Oh, well. Your brother also followed that path. And then he followed. He actually, he sort of went around behind me because he was never interested in acting. And, uh, and suddenly, out of nowhere, at the age of 15, he said, I think I'll audition for the school play. And he got to play the lead. He got to play Hadrian VII in Hadrian VII. And who knew? He was really talented. So he went off to drama school early at 16, which was wow. earlier than anyone had been there while I was still pursuing my academic career. So he, that was even more of a reason for me to be a lawyer, because now even my brother's in the business. So it's like, someone's, heaven's sake, someone do something realistic. Um, but anyway, so we both went into the business, and I came out here after meeting my wife in England, so we both came back here. And my brother joined me two years later. He came visit and decided this was a place to stay. Um, and went into directing more on daytime and ended up producing Young and the Restless. And he now directs at uh, Days of Our Lives. So it's like a real family business. That's pretty Were you there when you went back? Well, uh, no, he wasn't. He, uh, he was hoping to, but because it was this little um, sort of five episode limited series, um, he, uh, they didn't use him. He was, I think he's, they kind of kept some people back doing preparing for the show stuff. Like, I think he's directing this week on the show, but he didn't do that limited um, Peacock thing, no. It was sad, we would have, it would have been fun. Yeah, absolutely. Has he ever directed you before on Days? I wanna say no, because I don't think I've been there uh, mm -hmm. while he's been directing. So I don't, I don't think we ever have. He might correct me on that, but I, if we did, it was like once way, way back, but I don't think so. So how did you meet your wife? At drama school, I was, uh, you know, a, a pale, uh, pimply-faced London schoolboy, you know, uh, schoolboy actor, uh, stu actor student, you know, very pale and wan, a uh, lot of, you know, smoking, roll your own cigarettes and getting into the whole kind of uh, thing. And suddenly this very gorgeous, tanned, uh, ex-ballerina from California arrived as a student in the year below me and you know of course we all wanted to score a date um, and after a, a, a while of keeping me at bay she agreed and um, the rest was history <laughs> and then we decided finally to get married this was way later I start, I went to work in England she went back to America we kept in touch on the phone and then one day I just said, this is crazy. I miss you too much. And it's like, this isn't working. Let's get married. Um, do you want to come here or shall I go there? And, and it was, you know, 1983, London was not very fun. It was pouring with rain all the time. So I said, well, you know, I'm up for sun and sand and freshly squeezed orange juice, if you are. So I came out. I just got, you know, said goodbye to friends and family, packed up 
and headed out here in April 83. You recently told Mara the incredible story of how you fought to be cast on General Hospital in the short-term role of Alistair, Holly's cousin, in 1984, a year later. So it is such a great story. We're going to make you tell it all over again for our <laughs> pleasure. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to because, uh, you know, I owe it all to the late, great Marvin Page, um, you know, who uh, went uh, really above and beyond as a casting director. I had read for him for this role. Um, and I heard back from my agent that they liked my reading very much, but I wasn't really the right look, quote unquote. And I just went, I don't know what that means, the right look, you know. Uh, do you mean I'm not handsome enough? And there was like, oh, well, I can't say that, but um, maybe not quite the right type. And I was like, you know, you can be honest. I've just come from England. You know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. If, it, if it's not handsome enough, just tell me. So they said, yeah, well, that's kind of it but you could call Marvin and see what he thinks. So I called him and said, look, I came in, I understand it's a good reading. Um, am I right in saying I just wasn't handsome enough? And he was kind of taken aback by this rather direct question and more or less said yes. So I said, well, you know, I can maybe get rid of this pale one complexion if I sit in the sun for a weekend. Can I, can I come back on Monday? And he said, sure, you know. So I went and sat myself in, on a beach uh, slathered in olive oil so I get a deeper tan. I borrowed a suit. I got my hair cut and, you know, a very nice, neat haircut and plastered aftershave on. And I went back the next morning, on Monday morning after the weekend, and he took one look at me and said, yeah, it's worth a shot. Let's see if we can surprise Gloria, Gloria Monty. So we went out in the corridor and he saw her coming down. So he, we jumped back into, the, into the, his office. And then as she was wait, walking by, he opens the door and he goes, well, thanks for coming in, Charlie. And he sees Gloria and goes, oh, Gloria, Charlie Shaughnessy, he was here yesterday. Um, are you interested in reading him again? Or, and she looked at me and went, yeah, okay, let him come in again. So I read a second time. And because of the tan, I got the job. And that sort of set things up because that week on General Hospital, got um, Shelley Curtis aware of me because Emma was a great friend of his, Emma Sams. And so when something came up for days, they kind of got me in and, you know, things started to roll. Mm -hmm. So what do you remember about the work that week on General Hospital and working with Emma Sams? It was so much fun. It was unlike anything I've ever done. I and mean, we have nothing like the daytime soaps in England nothing and in those days especially with the big hair and the glamour and these sort of crazy storylines i had this neat little self-contained storyline of this con man alistair who is conning all the old ladies out of their jewels so that was great because i i understood that if i'd been involved in ice princesses and you know trying to rule the world i don't know what would have happened but i was doing this very contained comprehensible little character which was a lot of fun and he was really fun he was this sort of a cheeky scallywag, um, and Tristan and Emma were great to work with. So I just remember it being a blast. Um, I really enjoyed it, um, and it was just the one week he came in, he did his thing, he got discovered and packed off, and that was it. Well, let me tell you, that week was so memorable for me. I can see clearly you on General Hospital in 1984. Um, but as you mentioned, it did lead to you moving to Salem. Um, so tell us how Days of Our Lives came about and how- Well, you that's kind of a fun, yeah, that's a fun story too, because a character came up and all he was called was McShane Mystery Man. <laughs> and he had Hope Brady locked in a cellar somewhere and was uh, 
you know, threatening to kill her if she didn't tell him what he wanted to know. So I thought, well, he's going to be a real tough cockney, you know, and I'm going to be like, oh, I hope, Brady, I'm going to really make you pay for it if you don't tell me what I want to know in a leather jacket. Um, so I did this audition, you know, real uh, terrifying kind of bad guy. And I hear back that I got the job, which was great, but they were sending a script and it was a little different from the audition. Well, there was no McShane mystery man. <laughs> there was a terrorizing hope. There was just a butler called Shane. Shane the butler. So far from saying, you know, oh, I'm going to make you pay. I'm saying, shall I serve the refreshments on the patio, madam? So I don't quite know how they got that from the audition. But anyway, that's what he says. Shall I serve the patio, uh, refreshments on the patio? And I thought that was all I had to do. And then right at the end, they said, oh, we're going to add a phone call. The phone's going to ring. We want you to pick it up and just look off and say, she just left. And I said, oh, great. Who am I talking to? We don't know. <laughs> well, I'm a good guy, a good guy or bad guy. We don't know. So how should I say it? Just be enigmatic. So I just did. She just left. <laughs> <laughs> and they went, great. And then that continued for like two months of just one line. Sometimes it was just a hand in the, in the, in the, in the basement going around a pillar with a ring so they could close in on this ring. And I'd get paid for it. I'd go in for a day. I'd do this. They'd see the ring. They'd say, thank you very much. I'd say, thank you, and get a paycheck. And that went on and on and on. And I finally said, you know, what is going on? And my agent then called me and said, well, I've got good news. They've just called and they want to put you on contract. They've decided who you are and you're called Shane, and you're a good guy, pretending to be a bad guy, and they'll put you on contract. So this little two-day thing turned into eight years. I remember those phone calls. You remember those phone calls, Seth? That's incredible. Remember those. Of course. <laughs> you had a very memorable entry. <laughs> it was. It was true. The, the little the hand and the ring. Yeah. Did your agent say, the good news is they want you on contract, the bad news is there's actually going to be several pages of dialogue? Yeah, no, they didn't really warn me about that. You know, Alistair was the only experience I'd had, and Shane, you know, saying the refreshments will be on the patio, I thought, this is easy. And then I discovered, you know, people were like, oh, you just wait. And then, then the yeah, it happened, and I got these... Because I was the new guy, I was the lowest guy on the totem pole, I had all the exposition. I'd come in on a Friday or a on a Monday and just recap the entire freaking storyline in, in like 30 pages. Yeah. Well, you did such a good job that in 1985, you took home the Soap Opera Digest Award for Outstanding New Actor. Belated congratulations to you, Charles. <laughs> Thank you. Do you remember the ceremony? Yeah, I do. I remember it. I, I, th I think it was the Beverly Hills Hilton. And um, I think it was. Uh, and I remember the award. And um, uh, I, I think I, I'm not sure whether it was that year or the following year that Patsy and I got best super couple. Um, so um, I sort of vaguely remember it. You know, it was it was all so new and so different. It was all a little bit like, you know, I'm not in Kansas anymore, but yeah. it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, well, you were there for a very special part of days in the mid 80s, and one of the classic super couples was born when your pairing with Patsy Pieces Kimberly took off with fans. As you mentioned, you won the Super Couple Award, not once, but twice. So first, tell us about your off-camera relationship with Patsy and why you think the two of you were so successful as acting partners. 
Well, I think, you know, I really think chemistry, people like to think it's sort of special people have special chemistry. It's, it's, it's when you're working with a really good actor, when you're working with an actor that understands rhythms and uh, how to listen to each other and how to be quiet and how to, you know, and, and different energies passing. It's like a kind of tap dance. It's, it's like jazz. And when you're playing jazz with a really good musician, um, it makes it look like you've been doing it all your life. Um, and that's what it was with Patsy. We just, we just worked as actors really well. Um, the storyline was a classic storyline, which helped this sort of, uh, you know, will they, won't they, you know, big secrets on both sides, not telling each other why they, you know, can't say I love you, but they want to say I love you. And the audience is going, you know, tell her you love her. <laughs> um, so all of that helped. Um, and, and we, you know, we really got along and trusted each other and worked well with each other off camera. We'd go run things and have ideas. Um, and so we knew we knew we were doing a good job, but we weren't aware of what it was being perceived as until we went to Knott's Berry Farm and uh, for a remote. And they had the public as audiences for an ice show that Hope was skating in. And they introduced everyone to the audience, to the, the public first. And they introduced Bo and Hope and um, uh, Marlena and Roman. And, uh, and then they introduced Shane and Kim. And the place went wild. And no one knew. The, even the producers and the directors there that day went, who knew? You know, <laughs> we, we were kind of surprised at how big an impact we had had. And so um, that was very encouraging. We knew we were onto something. Well, what stands out to you when you think about the totality, I guess, of that, you know, heady Kim and Shane becoming a super couple era and all the fan attention and all of the soap opera digest covers that, that came with it? You know, it was, um, it was just sort of hard to understand. As I say, it was such a foreign thing because it's, 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 it's fiercely intense, but it's, it's a kind of sidewater. It's a, it's a little, um, uh, you know, uh, it's like you're going down the river and then you know how it eddies off into a side and you get this thing, this little side pond in which you're huge and uh, the fans are wildly enthusiastic and you become hugely famous. But it's easy to forget that it is very specific. Um, and so in the other world, if they're not watching, not just not watching soaps, but not watching your story, I would go out some weekends to do things, open malls or whatever, and there'd be 8,000 screaming fans, you know, or you'd be sitting at a table in a big Walmart signing photographs, and there'd be a line out the door, but then there'd be some family pushing a grocery cart by staring at you going, who are you? And I go, um, you watch ABC, do you? Yeah, yeah, I always watch ABC. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Just keep moving. <laughs> you won't know. So if, if they were CBS or ABC, they wouldn't know you from Adam. They wouldn't know who you were. If they were NBC, yeah, they knew. So I very quickly realized not to get too carried away by all this. It was a lot of fun, and it was very gratifying, but in a specific realm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Shane and Kim's wedding was sort of pinnacle peak moment. You know, there were so many wonderful super couple weddings in the 80s. Do you have any standout memories of filming the wedding? Uh, you know, weddings are just hell, let's face it. I mean, they're hell in real life and they're hell to shoot. You know, I mean, I know they're meant to be the best day of your life and they're meant to be, you know, special. But most of the time, there is just so much going on. There's, you know, there's some auntie, you know, getting drunk in the corner and there's some uncle, you know, making out off-color jokes. Uh, so they're stressful in real life. And when, you, when you've got like cameras and you've got, you know, extras and you've got pages of dialogue, um, they, they're, not, they're not that fun. They're fun to watch, um, but they're not a lot of fun to make. So you kind of just spend the day waiting to get it done. <laughs> I wish I could say, oh, it was a magical day, but that's just not true. I mean, you know, we both, Batsy and I would sort of, have moments to laugh at it and step out, you know. But you can't, you got to stay in character a lot too. So you can't really um, dis dissociate from it. You know, you've got to stay very focused because there's a lot to get through in a day. Um, and it was the same, you know, if I may just jump into a whole other thing. Uh, when, when the nanny, when, when I got married uh, to the nanny, you know, it's the same thing. Everyone, the whole of America is like, oh my God. But it was a nightmare to do. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You know, they go, no, it was just magic. It was the best. I can't remember a better day on set. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, my best day on set was when I just had to point to a ring and get a That was exactly, exactly. No, even better are the comas. <laughs> even better than the ring is the coma. Because there you just show up for tape, you get into your pajamas, you get into bed, and then people say lovely things about you and cry all over you. And then you get out and go home and they send you a paycheck. <laughs> the very definition of nice work if you can get it. Oh, absolutely. Um, so who who were your like buddies and pals in the day's cast back Oh, uh, we were so, I mean that's what I that's what I really uh, enjoyed, you know, and in those days you had a luxury. We had much more time in the day. I mean, yes, we did a show a day, but there wasn't quite the budget restraints and certainly not the COVID restraints that we have now. So um, we would hang out and, and, and run scenes and get all the jokes out of the way because sometimes you just have to laugh at some of the stuff. Um, so there was like, you know, Drake and Steve and uh, Peter and Christian and Patsy and... Um, um, uh, and Deirdre, less, less Deirdre because um, I didn't work a lot with her. I, our scenes didn't really coincide. Um, but, you know, on Jim Reynolds, we, we used to uh, have a lot together, sort of ISA please stuff. And it was just so fun. Um, Jim and his wife, Lisa, and my wife, Susan, and I, the four of us went on vacation once. We went off to... Um, to the Grand Caymans for a, for a scuba diving vacation. I mean, we, we were just great pals. It was a real sort of uh, family of friends. Did you get recognized? Shane and-, and A Ava. little bit, yeah. Actually, yeah. I believe we might even have got a room upgrade on that. I can't, I think, <laughs> I think we did. Nice. We had yeah. to go in pairs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been good. I've had a couple of um, perks. Uh, especially in the eighties, because you know, as you say, the, the soaps are huge. And if they if they watched your show, you were 
you know, you were it. So, yeah. Well, before you left the show, you were part of a storyline that was not quite as popular with fans, and that was the romantic pairing of Shane and Kayla Kim Snyder, <laughs> yeah. whose husband Steve was presumed dead. I know. <laughs> that was one of the times when we just, you know, laughed. I mean, it was just... I kept saying to them, you know, what they needed to do was to have them you know, really hate each other with a passion. Like she blames him for Steve's death and he, you know, um, hates her because she reminds him of Steve or whatever. And they just don't get along. And it's in that passion of not liking each other that they suddenly like each other. And the writers could not get their head around that. So instead, they had me basically chasing, Shane chasing Kayla around the table at the funeral. I mean, at the <laughs> wake. You know, I've always told, I've always loved you. <laughs> Stop, let me tell you. I've always loved you. It's like, how can you, you know, if you're trying to destroy two characters, that's the way to do it. So, yeah, it was kind of um, bizarre, I have to say. Yeah. Well, what was that like for you to be now in a kind of unpopular pairing and on the other side of the fan sentiment? It, it, it wasn't sort of personally upsetting because it wasn't anything to do with me. I think I was just frustrated because. I could see how it could have been really well done. I mean, as I say, there was plenty of reason for them to really hate each other. And, you know, extreme emotions, you know, suddenly they're back to back. Extreme hate and extreme love can be very close. They're both passions. So to go that route, I thought, would give the audience a chance to see them together, yelling at each other, disliking each other and let the audience go hmm but you know what they kind of are kind of cute together you know wouldn't it be and let them push it a bit but um so i was frustrated professionally um but um it didn't it didn't i didn't take it personally but it was yeah i was and there was sometimes like that i mean i don't want to you know uh monday morning quarterback and i don't want to disrespect the the people who do a great job there, the writers who do a great job. It, it just seemed to me um, a a misstep that uh, was frustrating when you when you're so invested in a character. Um, it's a, it's sad when they do something that you just think so out of character. This episode is brought to you by Wooga and their podcast, June's Journey. If you're like me, you love a good mystery, and June's Journey is an incredibly popular hidden object murder mystery game that will unleash your inner sleuth and immerse you in an exciting adventure set in the Roaring Twenties. You take on the role of June Parker, an amateur detective looking into her sister's death. This free-to-download smartphone game puts your observation skills to the test, along with your reflexes. I have to say I'm a big fan of this game. There are numerous areas of gameplay that are both interesting and tough. The story mixes the perfect quantity of intrigue, mystery, and drama, much like your favorite soaps. It's the only game I play, and it's immediately enjoyable and has that something that keeps you coming back for more. It's fantastic and contains a lot of levels and is a lot of fun to play. If you love a good mystery set in one of the most iconic time periods, download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And now, back to the show. So in 1992, after your eight-year run, you exited Days, and it was the following year that uh, you were cast as Mr. Sheffield, a.k.a. Maxwell Sheffield, on a 
a little show that perhaps some people listening will have heard of called The Nanny. Um, tell us the casting process for that role. Well, that was, um, that was kind of, again, bizarre. These stories are all true and they're strange because um, I knew coming off the soap, as I said, I knew that I was a soap star, but I was not a TV star. So rather than having my agent call people up for things and say, you know, Charles Chance, he was a big star on Days of Our Lives and he wants to audition for you. I said, let's not mention it because they're not going to be impressed either way. So um, let's just sort of forget Days. It was great. Put it aside and I'll be an actor going in and auditioning. So I started auditioning and I did a sh uh, an episode of Murphy Brown, um, uh, which was a CBS show. Um, and I played Murphy's date to the inaugural ball. It was a wonderful episode and I had a big role in it. Um, and I also did an episode of Mad About You, um, which was um, uh, Sony TriStar with the studio. So then about four months after that, this pilot came up, the script arrived um, for me of The Nanny and I read it and I, said to my agents, you know, they said they're interested in seeing you for this. And I said, you know, it has to be a huge hit because sitcom dads, if you're a middle hit, you know, you don't, that's it. You're kind of typecast as a sitcom dad. So if this runs for like two years, um, I'll be dead for another three years of trying to get a job. So it better be big, I, but I think I should pass. And my agent said, no, no, no. I think this is going to be this is really tipped to be a good, a good show. I think at least you should, um, we should put your name in the hat. So they then told me that they weren't going to let me audition. They were going to try and finesse this because Sagansky, the head of CBS, had remembered me from Murphy Brown. And he had said to them, without me knowing, he had said Charles Shaughnessy for this. The same time, TriStar Sony, who were the studios, who remembered me from Mad About You, went, oh, Charles Shaughnessy, he'd be good for this. So my agent and manager did the Hollywood shuffle. And I'd only done a soap. And these two episodes, I, I didn't think I was powerful enough to say, I'm not auditioning, you have to make an offer. But they were like, no, well, just, just let us do our job. So time went on and they seemed to want me to do it. And it came to the point where clearly Fran and I had to get together. So they do this little shuffle where it's a meeting. Would you like to meet with Fran and the showrunners? And I, yeah, I like to audition because I want people to know what they're getting. So I said, yes, I'd love to meet with them. And I think we should read a scene because if it doesn't work, I don't want to be stuck in a job where everyone's like, oh, this isn't working and they're not going to want me. So let's not call it an audition. So I went along pouring with rain. I remember I was wearing these, silly yellow rubber boots because I had rain boots. You know, I was the only one in Los Angeles because I came from England. You know, it rains. You know, I don't like getting my feet wet. So I had these little yellow boots, which I thought actually was very Maxwell Sheffield, by the way. And we went in and I met with Fran and Rob and Prue, the showrunners, and we sort of made polite conversation, eyeing each other up. And then finally they said, you know, um, we've got the script here. What do you think about maybe just... Um, reading a scene. I said, great. So we read uh, a couple of scenes. And like I say, the chemistry that we were good at, we were good enough actors. 
and understood each other well enough and understood what the game was, that she had that accent, I had my, she came from Queens, I came from Britain. So we knew how to play those moments. Um, and there was this big sigh of relief in the room because everyone had more or less committed to me. But now it's like, okay, I think this will work. Now, Fran has another way. Fran says, oh, Charlie came in audition. So <laughs> I've, always, I've always said, well, sort of audition, sort of meeting. But um, anyway, so that's how it happened. And then I had to go and now do the whole thing again. Fran and I had to do it for the network. We had to do it for the studio. You do your um, screen tests and all that. But by then, the ball was rolling, and it was kind of mine to lose. And, uh, and then, you know, they said, yes, we're, you know, you've got it and we're doing the pilot. And, uh, and then we knew it was a great pilot. We knew we had a really, really, probably the best pilot I've seen, I think, because it just told the whole story in 20 minutes. Um, but then you're at the mercy of the network and do they have bigger stars in bigger shows and blah, 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 blah. Um, but we, we managed to get on the air and we did a few and then they put us on hold and then we did a few more and they put us on hold and then they, they reran it in the summer in reruns. And that's when we found our audience Monday nights in the summer on reruns, everyone found it. And then by the time the summer ended, we were rolling. Wow. Now, at the time, Fran Drescher, who you mentioned, co-created and starred in the show, she was not a household name at the time. I mean, did you have any indication that this show would wind up as successful as it was and have the long run that it's had no. in syndication to this day? We had no idea it would be as big as it was, particularly abroad. I mean, the great thing about this show is it works in every culture. The story is the same everywhere. Everyone recognizes the cheeky, attractive servant who's smarter than the master with whom she falls in love. I mean, it's The Sound of Music, it's Mary Poppins, it's all those, you know, it's many different, and, so it, and it goes through every culture. Everyone has the girl from Queens and the sort of upper-class guy, whether you're in Australia or China or anywhere. So everyone recognized it. But we didn't know that at the time, that it was going to be quite that, ring that sort of bell. Um, but we did know it was good. And I knew Fran from, um, from Spinal Tap. And I knew she had done Princesses, this short-lived series on CBS. But when you meet Fran, you realize she's a force of nature. And if anyone is going to get that show on the air and running at full steam, it would be Fran. So uh, I felt like we were in very capable hands. Uh, she had a great relationship with the um, studio and the network. And I'll tell you a quick story. We've been, you know, on, off, on, off, and we just got through our first season. And it was like the numbers were good, but blah, blah, blah. And so Fran had a dinner party at her house for Howard Stringer, who was the president of CBS, Jeff Sagansky, who was the, he was, you know, ran it. He, he was the sort of, um, I know what they call him. Um, but he was the CEO, uh, head of it, head of programming. That's right. Um, and then myself and my wife and a couple of other people. We had a lovely dinner outside. And towards the end, Fran leant across the table to toast something. And she was wearing this long sweater. And she leant across and the sweater caught fire on the candle. And suddenly there's Fran Dresch with a glass of wine going up in flames. And the head of the network, uh, uh, Howard Stringer, 
launched, tore off his jacket and launched himself across the, the garden on top of her and ripped, ripped off her top. So he ripped off her sweater, threw her to the ground with his jacket and was beating out the flames. And they finally pulled themselves off each other. And Fran put herself together and said, well, now you've torn my sweater off. You have to pick us up next season. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, and I honestly think that did it. It was so, it was such a great response to the situation and sort of cut the ice and everyone laughed. And I, I'm pretty sure at that moment, Singer, Howard, Howard Stringer and uh, Sagansky looked at each other and said, you know, she's a force of nature. We've got to give her another season. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So you had, you had had a, a taste of some notoriety and success, you know, on a on a certain scale, as we discussed with Shane. Right. But how did life change when the nanny became the juggernaut that it was, and you were, I'm sure, that much more recognizable? Right. Yeah. It was. It was a kind of um, scaling up of the same kind of thing. I mean, what was interesting was everyone else on the nanny. No one else on the nanny, even Fran, had not experienced anything like that. But I had. So when it all started to happen, um, you know, people would look at me and say, "You know, you're so cool about this." And I go, "Well, you see, I've kind of." been there, you know, in a slightly different scale, yes. But, you know, 8,000 screaming fans in a mall in, you know, somewhere in the middle of Minnesota. Um, I've done that. So I was able to sort of get them prepared for what was possibly going to happen. And then, yes, it did. It sort of became uh, its own phenom phenomenon. But they're never like soap fans. I mean, no one is as passionate or as vocal as soap fans. So no matter how popular the show got and how popular we got and recognized we were, it was never as intense as it was for Shane. And I would still get recognized as Shane. People would come up and go, are you, are you? And I'd have to go, uh, Mr. Sheffield or Shane? <laughs> <laughs> and I would begin to like recognize the demographic where I was, if I was in Target or if I was in Walmart or if I was, you know, at Whole Foods, you know, I could, I could basically <laughs> guess which fan was which. <laughs> well, when you look back at that time, you know, what, what do you think about? I mean, obviously, I imagine your work schedule was also different just because a sitcom schedule is different than a soap schedule. So your life just oh, felt different yeah. in ways too. The, the sitcom schedule, I mean, this is a big secret that no one lets out because people would hate actors even more. But a sitcom schedule, when you've been through the first two seasons, so it's running like a machine and the network aren't giving notes, it's stealing money. We would go in on Monday for a table read at 10 o'clock and then it would finish the read about 11 o'clock and we'd get up and goof around and have coffee and we would quickly block it with our scripts in hand. We'd just go through every scene very quickly. And it's only about 20 minutes of actual material. So by noon, we were done, and the writers would come back in, and we'd show them what we'd done. We'd just run it through with the scripts in our hand very quickly. And they'd say, okay, and they'd make notes. And we'd go home. So that was 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Tuesdays, we wouldn't come in, because they'd spend Tuesdays rewriting the script. Wednesday, you'd come in with a slightly changed script, same thing, block it, run it for the studio and the writers, home by 3 o'clock uh, or 4 o'clock. Uh, Thursday, come in for like an hour, 
to just give the cameras an idea of where you stand and then all your stand-ins would do the rest of the day. So Thursday was like, you know, 10 till 11. And then Friday you'd go in at noon and you'd be there all day until the end of taping at nine o'clock in the evening. But it was like, it was about 10 hours work a week. Great. <laughs> compared to the soap where you're just, you arrive at six in the morning and you work your tuchus off every day you're in. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was, it was a, a very, very easy schedule, almost too much. What I enjoyed about the soaps is that when you're in, you're really working. You know, you're, you're really having to remember lines and think of blocking and come up with ways of performing a thing and it would be a bit different and the character would change. On a sitcom, they want the character exactly the same every week. They want the same catchphrase said the same way Storylines are pretty much the same each week, very little dialogue. So in a way it was, there was almost too little work. It would get a little frustrating. And that's why a lot of these actors who were on very successful sitcoms, I think they, they can tend to get into trouble sometimes and just get difficult because you're just not feeling like you're being used. You know, you're sort of a racehorse that's only allowed to trot. Um, and that was, that was, took a little getting used to. Well, one project that you did while shooting Banani, which was quite a departure creatively, uh, was a TV movie that you did where your character's lover was played by Charlotte Ross, who had been your Days of Our Lives daughter, uh, <laughs> playing Eve. I need to know if it was weird for you, because I got to tell you, <laughs> I watched every second and it surely was weird for me. It was like... Well, first of all, that came up, and uh, it was like when NBC was doing Sleazebag of the Week TV movie. <laughs> and, and we thought, you know, it'd be fun to do something completely different. Um, uh, but I, Charlotte wasn't cast at that point. So I thought, fine, that's, it sounds kind of, it's kind of creepy and awful and rather fun to play that. And then my agent said, and guess what? To make it even creepier, they've cast your daughter the woman, the girl who played your daughter for five years as the woman that you fall in love with and rape and murder in the back of a car. <laughs> so we've, I first saw Charlotte in a makeup trailer and I'm, we're sitting in the, I'm sitting in the makeup trailer and she comes in and she sees me and like, Charlie! And I go, hello, Charlotte, come and sit on daddy's knee. <laughs> and she just goes, ew! And so we had this kind of, ew reaction throughout the entire shooting you know i would sort of come up behind her and start breathing heavily and, <laughs> go, <"Ew!" laughs> and we just man i mean we would it would be hard not to laugh because it was just so appalling um <laughs> but actually at the same time quite fun it was sort of so appalling it was kind of fun and she was great you know i mean she's a wonderful actress and um and you know we had a lot of fun doing it despite everything. That could make a great title for your memoirs. So appalling, it was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> now the nanny did come to an end in 1999. Were you bummed or were you sort of ready to go do something else? You know, it's always a bit of both. It's a real mixed bag. I think we all would have liked to have got to seven seasons. It seemed to be a sort of magic number. When it started, I remember the showrunners, we were sitting at a party before, just after we shot the pilot, and Rob said to me, so, you know, clear your decks for the next seven years. 
And I held him to it. I said, you know, we only got six. <laughs> so we all would have liked seven. But at the same time, it was kind of running its course, especially when they insisted that we get married and we had kids. And it sort of all began to fall apart, um, really. Um, they had a plan, if it was picked up, to like do the Lucy show, like from I Love Lucy to the Lucy show. We would have moved to Los Angeles. Maxwell would have got into movies and Fran would have been constantly trying to meet the stars and basically do I Love Be the Lucy show. Um, so that was on the plans and it seemed like a good idea and would have been fun. Um, but such a departure from what we had already been doing that it would have been an entirely different show. So, and it, it had been a long run and we just, I think we felt like we'd done most of what we could. Um, so it was time to leave. But on the other hand, you know, I did know that I was going to be finding it hard to get working again because I was Mr. Sheffield and it's hard to put Mr. Sheffield into a, you know, a, 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 a CSI or something, because everyone's going, you know, he's not a murderer, he's Mr. Sheffield. <laughs> so um, there was, that was hard. I kind of went into theater at that point. I, I started doing a lot of stage to sort of get away from TV, keep working and keep myself, the juices going, um, which actually turned out to be fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed that period, um, but it was a bit tough to get going again. And then, uh, you know, things came up uh, gradually, little things which I could, as I got older and more moved away from Mr. Sheffield, up came things like Mad Men and The Magicians and things like that, as well as a lot of stage stuff. And I got to do um, You're in Town on Broadway. I even ended up in a Broadway musical, which was like never on the cards. When you and I were talking and you told me that you sublet Finola Hughes's apartment when you were in, in the musical, I went, Oh my gosh, I saw you in that. I, I didn't remember, but right. I, I remember my like going with my best friend and we had such an incredible time and you were awesome. Oh, thank uh, you. It was a then, wonderful show. It's a one it really is a wonderful show. And then I remember practically gasping in glee when you popped up on Mad Men. So that's another, yeah. another show we both uh Stephanie and I both watched and loved, so we have to ask you about. So how did Mad Men come about? That was a straight, flat-out audition. Um, I auditioned actually for a smaller part. There was a car salesman that was in one episode, and I met with uh, Matt Weiner and auditioned for that uh, and didn't get that job. Um, and in retrospect, I think probably what happened was he was already writing Sinjin Powell and sort of earmarked me for that because then a month later up came Sinjin Powell, and I went in and met him again and read for it. Um, and got the job and was so thrilled because I, like you, I was a huge fan. So I was like, for the one of the only times in my life, I was completely starstruck. <laughs> I got on the set and I was like, you know, slightly babbling because it was, you know, Don Draper and, you know, all these characters that I knew. And I was having to be very cool and, you know, be a professional actor, but actually just thrilled. Um, and it was, it was thrilling. It was such a high end show you know every department was just crackling the wardrobe department the props the set dressing the writing the lighting the directing the camera i mean all of it was like top top end um and and really thrilling you know you were saying some great dialogue playing a great character uh 
and and working with these really fabulous people. So that was that was a very thrilling little jaunt that I had there. Well, do you know of anyone who was thinking, God, Mr. Sheffield's on our show? <laughs> well, you, I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I think there were one or two who knew. So yeah, one or two did and, and, and came quietly, but it was like, you know, you know, very quietly. I just have to tell you, I watched the nanny, you know, because this was highbrow, you know, this was AMC highbrow stuff, you know, so. Never been um, finding a Days fan, I imagine. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but you know, and you get you get people in the business. Uh, I remember when I was on Days, being summoned to meet the head of programming at ABC in Century City. Um, my manager said she she's never met you, and she wants to meet you. And I went, why? And she says, you know what? You should meet because she's like head of programming and development, and they're doing these big shows. Maybe she's got you in mind for a big new show. So I went off to meet her, went up in the elevator, had my little badge, finally, you know, ushered into her office and sat down, thinking she was going to say, you know, Charles, listen, I've been an admirer of your work, and I'd like you to read a couple of scripts because you've got a show. Instead of which, she just goes, Shane Donovan. <laughs> I asked your manager to send you here because I just wanted to meet Shane Donovan. And she pulled out a drawer and she said, look, I have a small television in my drawer and I never miss a show. And I'm like, well, that's very nice, but aren't you going to offer me a show? <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. I just wanted to meet Shane Donovan. So I signed her card and signed something for her children and then went home. And I'm like, seriously? So you never quite know who the fans are. Somebody owes you gas money. Yeah, really. I don't know about all that. That's so funny. You know, starting in 2002, we have seen you make sporadic reprisals uh, on Days of Our Lives of Shane and occasionally even Drew. Um, and most recently, we saw you take part in the Peacock spinoff, Beyond Salem. So tell us what it was like for you to be on the set of that, to be back with your old buddies, and to be playing the character again. It was, it was so fun. I mean, it's, uh, I said to, you know, the, the only problem is, again, this damn COVID, you know, we were all having to wear masks. You weren't allowed to be on top of each other. You couldn't be in the dressing with each other. I said, well, can we like run lines? And the stage manager said, only if you're in the parking lot and you're, wa you're wearing your mask and you're six feet apart. I went, well, how do we, you know? So that was sad because I couldn't really meet up with the pals, but I worked with Drake and Deirdre um, and Jim and um, um, that was really the only old guard that I worked with. So that was great to see them. And then to meet some of the new kids <clears throat> who I worked with are just, you know, fantastic. And it was this great blending of the old and the new. They had some of us old, you know, guard, and they had the new guard. And the storyline was very much a kind of 80s storyline with other things thrown in very sort of 2021 with the whole drag ball, drag show and all that so it was a great mishmash so it was a lot of fun to be there and to do it and to trot Shane out and especially to shot, trot Andrew out who yeah. I always enjoy because he's like you had to think he was Shane but there's something about Andrew's energy that's just not really Shane um, and I and I wanted to sort of bring that out in a subtle way rather than doing something too obvious there's just something when he comes in and um, gets the jewels off uh, Ciara and um, Ben, is it? 
Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name. The character, yeah. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm the one who's responsible for your, um, your niece's death or something, your granddaughter's death. And he's like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> put that all past me now. So listen, I better go. And I love doing that. <laughs> And then Shane comes in and it's like, I want to kill you. So I kind of enjoyed that. I, I thought that was really fun. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of secret nanny fans, I will tell you, I spoke to Victoria Konafal, who plays Sierra, and she said that she pulled Rob aside and said, you know that's Mr. Sheffield from the <laughs> And she said she had to, like, really put her in her fangirl. Like, right. Yeah. Well, it's like me on Mad Men. I, it's yeah. the same thing. You know, as actors, we do. We, we, we admire people's work, and, you, you know, you do find yourself working with them, and you have to be professional. But, you know, you just take a little moment to say, look, I just got to get this out of the way because I've watched you all my life, and I think you're fantastic, and just wanted to say that, okay, now let's, you know, act. Um, so it's, it happens to all of us. I remember working with Alan Bates. I did a play with Alan Bates, you know, and, um, you know, he was a huge star in England that I grew up with. I mean, he's one of the reasons I became an actor and you just have to get it out of the way and they're very charming and pleasant about it. And, and then you move on. Mm -hmm. Well, it was right around the time of Beyond Salem, um, that you found out that GH was interested in you to take over the role of Victor Cassidyne, which had been previously played by Teo Penglis, your day's co-star who plays Tony. Um, so what appealed to you about taking that gig? Well, um, first of all, it, it was, it happened just after I taped. So I never got to clear it with Teo, which is kind of, it would have been interesting if I had known at the time, see what his reaction was. But, um, um, I was thrilled, you know, it came out of the blue, um, as did the Beyond Salem. So from not having anything to do with daytime for years, suddenly I missed the daytime for a week, um, which was crazy and fun, but bonkers. Um, and the idea of Victor Cassidyne was very exciting. I love to be the, you know, I love Shane, but he's awfully Dudley Do-Right, you know, and um, does the right thing all the time or tries to. So it's kind of nice to be the bad guy, you know, and then having uh, heard I got the job, I, I wanted to get a little background. So I knew what I was committing to when I went there on the first day and started taping. So I asked to speak to um, a writer that, you know, knew the character and they put me in touch with, with Elizabeth, who's, um, I think some story editor, like one of the top story editors there, um, who knew Victor Cassidyne's character very well. She had obviously developed that character to an extent. So she filled me in on who he was, his story, his relationship with Lisa Albrecht, with, you know, what's going on. Um, just enough, not too much, just enough to like, let me not make any big mistakes in, and, and be sort of baked into something wrong. So that was great. So they've all been incredibly useful and welcoming and um, seem happy to have me. And uh, it's, it's, I, I sort of feel like, you know, I hit the ground running and, and I've been really, really happy there. So I have to know, have you run into Fanola Hughes, who we know that you know, or I Wally know. Perth, who know. you also know because he, of course, also plays Justin on Days of Our Lives? Right. I know it's very frustrating because I walk down the corridor and, and you know, in the old days, you'd walk down the corridor and there'd be people everywhere. People 
you know, hanging out in the makeup room and walking up and down the corridors or in the corridors chatting. So I walk down and I go past Finola's door and I go past Wallika and I see, you know, and I believe Tristan's coming on at some point, you know, all these people I know, but you're not allowed to knock on the door and go in, you know, someone's going to jump out at you and arrest you, you know, so I'm hoping that I'm thinking that it's more likely than not, we'll have some scenes together because he's already mentioned the WSB. And so I have a feeling it won't be long before we're crossing swords. There's no and, way Victor Katz yeah, is getting out yeah. of there. Without so I, I'm looking yeah, forward to that. Scorpio. Yeah, we're all looking forward to that. Well, it's almost like a superverse where we're having the ISA meet the WSB in that. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, all, <laughs> it's like, awesome. yeah, it's it sort of, it's a little, uh, it is a little freaky out there. It's yeah. kind of what they're doing in the movies. Like these Marvel universe meets right. the, you know, Avengers or whatever it is. They keep doing that in the movies and hey, maybe we'll do it here. Um, well, at this stage of your career, do you ever feel nerves or jitters when you take on a new character? Um, you know, it's not so much nerves and jitters on TV. Sometimes on stage, you get you can get like uh, stage fright can suddenly come out of nowhere. Um, you get anticipation. I get anxious about you know like what's this going to be like. You know, I may have in my head what I want to do. Is is it going to come out of my mouth the right way? Uh, are people going to like it? Uh, am I going to be taken aside and someone says, mm, you know, that was okay, but, you know, can you try something different? You're not handsome enough. <laughs> uh, so you're always a little bit anxious. You know, we're basically pretty insecure creatures. Uh, we like to be patted on the head and told we're doing well. You know, good boy. <laughs> Get a treat every now and again. Um, so until that happens, you're a little on, on edge and anxious. And as soon as someone pats you on the head, you can relax. And, you know, they say, you, you know, I've said, am I on the right track? And they go, oh, yeah, on the right track. So then you're kind of, you can just look forward to it. Well, we are having this conversation remarkably. 37 years after you made your first GH appearance, that is remarkable, truly, in and of itself. And, and in this conversation, we have only scratched the surface of all your many creative endeavors and projects. But before we let you go, can you try to sum up, you know, what your experience on daytime has meant to you personally and to your trajectory in this business? Well, I mean, uh, I don't know what would where I'd be if it wasn't for daytime. You know, I mean, that was the first uh, real introduction to America of Charles Shaughnessy as a performer, and um, first on, on and General Hospital sort of feels like a great. Um, you know how in shows they have a teaser and then you have the credits and then you have the show and General Hospital and the teaser's got to be like really good to keep you watching. So General Hospital was this great teaser. I had a week to introduce myself to America uh, and the audience, the daytime audience. And then there was the titles and I kind of went away. And then boom, Shane Donovan is the show. So it worked out perfectly. Uh, I had eight glorious years um, and always enjoy going back. Some actors, you know, they'll call and say, would you come back? And they go, absolutely not. I've always said, you know, give me a storyline. I don't want to go and just do nothing for a day. But if there's a story, I'm always happy to go back to daytime. I think daytime uh, actors work harder than anyone. Um, it's 
an in, it's incredible. When you've worked on nighttime and you see how long it takes, you know, 10 days um, to shoot one episode, and you go to daytime and they're doing a show, sometimes a show and a half in a day, it's unbelievable the talent and the energy and the focus that you need and that these people have. So I'm a huge fan of daytime as a professional. So, um, you know, it's meant everything in my career. It's, it's how I got started. And, um, um, you know, I, 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 I love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it. And I'm so happy to be back at it, you know. Well, so are we. And oh, this yeah. has been the most delightful chat. It was so great hearing your stories, all of them. Well, and thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Mara. I, I tell you, you know, you just wind me up and I'll just keep going. <laughs> oh, sorry. Thank you so much, Charles. All right. You're so, so welcome. Nice talking to you all. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Charles Shaughnessy for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast.